We are back in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 34. And we're going to be finishing up this last portion of this chapter, beginning in verse 29 to the end. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 34, 29. And if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 34, 29. Listen to God's word. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, earlier this year, uh, I took a little bit of time to just look back on my life. Uh, I, I'm 45 years old this year, and uh, I was kind of in a period of just kind of a little bit being just in the doldrums a little bit, and so I just thought it would be a good exercise for me to kind of review my life over the past 25 years and to see and examine and try to recount all the instances of God's grace in my life and to be thankful for it. And I can't believe how much has changed over the past 25 years of my life. 25 years ago, I was a junior at UCLA. Back then, I worked at Bloomingdale's, and now I'm a pastor at a church. Back then, I rarely read a book, and now I'm kind of disappointed with myself if I don't read a book every week. I used to ride a motorcycle at that time, and now I'm afraid to even get on an electric scooter. Things have certainly changed. And I think by the Lord's mercy, I've changed spiritually that I'm just a smidgen more like Jesus. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. This is all of God's grace. But as I look back 25 years ago, the reason why I think perhaps that I've grown in the Lord is because I kind of look back 25 years and I'm a little embarrassed about what I used to be like, about the way I used to treat authority in the church. There was... I literally, somebody had to hold me back from interrupting a church service by walking up into the pulpit. Uh, I remember what my first Bible study was like, oh, you know. And I remember my very first sermon, this really, really cringy stuff. 
And I anticipate that when I'm 65, I'll probably say, can you believe what the church put up with those sermons that it preached when I was 45? Well, hopefully you can say that you too, after two years or five years or maybe 15 years of your life, that there are things in your life that, spiritually speaking, you're embarrassed about because you've matured. Whether it's little things in your life, like maybe perhaps cleaning up your language or big things in your life, like in your battle against pornography or anger or rage. You've grown in Christ. You've been sanctified. Now, people have all sorts of ideas of what it means to change and what it means to grow. Uh, the world will tell us it's time and it's experiences, but we know those things are not guarantee are not a guarantee of maturity in Christ. There's a lot of people with a lot of time and with a lot of experiences that are still infants in the Lord. Christians might tell us that the way to mature is to take every opportunity you have to learn. So go to every Bible study, go to every Sunday school and learn. Take good notes. Go to every conference that you possibly can go to and attend. Again, those things are good, but they are certainly means by which we grow, but we can't think our way into transformation. As if the way that we grow as Christians is by mere intellectual transfer. What we see in our passage is that to grow and to be sanctified requires a seeing. It requires sight. We are sanctified by what we see, or to put it another way, we become what we behold. We become what we behold. Whenever, whatever you spend your time looking at, adoring, admiring, you will be like that. It will leave a mark on you. Those things shape and change you. And in our passage this morning, we see that Moses meets with God and he is changed. His face becomes radiant. And while we can be fairly certain that we won't have that same glow, the same shine that Moses had, it is, I, I, I think it's more obvious that we might think it is, whether we've been with God or everywhere else but with him. You become what you behold. So if you haven't already, you need to be in Exodus 34, 29 through 35. We're going to look and spend a little bit of time in, this, in these couple of verses, and then afterwards we'll take a skip into the New Testament. But in Exodus 34, 29, this is the concluding section to the incident of the golden calf. Earlier, Moses had come down from Mount Sinai and was confronted with absolute chaos. Israel had fallen to the wayside and because they had worshipped the golden calf, they had broken covenant, and, and Moses, as he comes down, is filled with anger and he breaks also the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments to signify that they have broken covenant with God. But a lot has happened since then. Uh, the people have repented, and now Moses comes back down again from ascending Mount Sinai, and now the people are ready to receive God's law. We'll see that next week.
The covenant is renewed, and there's a fresh copy of the Ten Commandments. But this time, there is something very different. Which brings us to our first point this morning. See God's glory veiled by Moses. First, see God's glory veiled by Moses. In verse 29, Moses comes down the mountain after being with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights up at the top of Mount Sinai, and the Lord has provided for him supernaturally because he neither ate nor drank. But when he comes down, his face is aglow. It is incandescent, a good vocabulary word. He had been in the glorious presence of God, as we saw earlier in chapter 38, and as a result of his exposure to divine radiation, his face itself is radiant. Commentator John Curry says, Moses reflected the effulgent splendor of Almighty God. Now, the way the Bible describes this remarkable light coming from Moses' face has been subject to a little bit of discussion. It's because the Hebrew word for shine is very similar to the Hebrew word for having horns. So, in some early translations of the Bible, especially the Latin Vulgate, okay, by Jerome, it says that the skin of his face sent out horns. This is why medieval and Renaissance artists such as Michelangelo Moses is portrayed as having horns on his head. Now, don't do it right now, but later, afterwards, okay? Google Michelangelo's marble sculpture of Moses, and you're going to see what he looks like. He's seated, and he has this long, flowing beard, and he's kind of holding his beard, but he has these two little, my little pony horns on his head. But the expression here isn't referring to horns, but to rays of light. And we know that because older translations, older than the Latin Vulgate, like the Septuagint, translates it as rays of light, as shining. And in our New Testament, also, when it refers to this incident, talks about it as rays of light and shining. Now, we can't be sure exactly what this looked like. We're left with all sorts of questions from our passage, aren't we? What did this look like? Did it look like he had a halo over his head? Did it look like he had one of those, you know, um, those, those uh, what are those? Those lights that people do to film themselves, you know, the circle light, whatever they're doing, right? Does it look like he got a really bad tan? We're, we're not quite sure. But whatever it was like, it caused fear in the people of God. Look at verse 30. The people were afraid to come near him. I'd like to think that the reason why the people were afraid is because it is the reflection of the glory of God. Just as the people were afraid of the glory when it came down on Mount Sinai, they were afraid because the glory was reflecting off of Moses. Now, notice in verse 31 that Moses calls the people to them and eventually puts a veil over his face. Again, lots of questions here. What was the veil like? Was it like, um, you know, those skin, those skin masks that, you know, people wear? It was like an N95 mask. Was it just like a Zorro kind of mask? Was it like a bridal veil? You know, was it like those um, masks that are so popular in China where it's like a whole visor that goes over the face? We're not quite sure. 
What's more, we don't know what happened to the veil. Uh, the, the passage makes it sounds like Moses wears it all the time when, uh, after meeting with the Lord. But this is the only incident that ever speaks in our Old Testament about the veil. So we don't really know much more information. I tend to think that this was a temporary measure here until the tabernacle was built, which happens in the next chapter. When the glory of the Lord would dwell with Israel among them. But this was a temporary measure that that's why there was this veil. But why does Moses put the veil on in the first place? You might think that it's because the glory radiating from Moses' face was so great that he had to keep the veil on as to not frighten people away. But did you notice, whenever Moses came back to speak with the people, he didn't have the veil on. You notice that from your passage, right? Verse 33, when Moses had finished speaking with them, then he put the veil on. So what's going on with the veil? For that, our answer comes from 2 Corinthians 3.13, which is also a little difficult to understand, but it says, 2 Corinthians 3.13, Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, you're like, what does that mean? Well, there is a little bit of a debate about what that means. Some say Moses put a veil over his face because the radiance of his face would kind of fade away. That somehow, you know, Moses had his glory tan. It was just kind of going away. And this was symbolic of the passing away of the old covenant and Moses veiled his face so that Israel would not be discouraged. Now, I don't think that that's what's going on here because that seems to be devoid of the context here, and it's devoid of the description. It just seems like something we're kind of adding into our passage into the Bible. I tend to take the view that the veil that Moses puts on his face was symbolic to the people of Israel, that there is still a distance between God and his people. Just as Moses had to fence the foot of Mount Sinai so that they would not behold the glory of God, so Moses veils his face. And this showed that Israel still couldn't perfectly draw near to God, and there was still a spiritual perception that was missing. So a ton of questions in our passage, I know. The rays of light, the veil... But one thing is clear, is that Moses had been with God and it showed, right? That was very, very clear. When, you're, when you've really been with the Lord, studying, meditating, hearing from the word or, or praying, it shows. And the radiant reflection of God's glory off of Moses was a very important uh, step in the lives of, of Israel. Because before the people had really questioned Moses, when Moses went up the mountain, they were like, who is this guy? Where is he? What's, what's going on with Moses? Is he, should we really listen to him? But now it's obvious as he comes down with the law, he is who we need to listen to. He, you could just tell by looking on his face. And what's more, this confirmed to the people that they were reconciled to God. Remember that this is in the context of the golden calf. Their, their sin with the golden calf had tons of consequences. 
people died. And God said, I will not go with you into the promised land. And the people pleaded. They were mourning. They said, no, Lord, we, want, we don't want to go into the promised land if you are not with us. But here's irrefutable evidence. Moses is back with the tablets. And God's glory and the shining of face of Moses tells them that God is with them. It might be obscured by a veil, but they knew God was with Moses, that Moses had met with them. Now, here's a question for you. Is it obvious to everyone around you who you've been with? Do you show any signs of being in the presence of God? What do you radiate when you step into the room? Now, you might be tempted to think, okay, Pastor Steve, first of all, I don't have a mountain like Mount Sinai, to go up to and behold the glory of God. And second, I don't think I'm, I have this shining face like Moses. I'm not going to be able to walk around with this face stained with the glory of God. But did you know that the New Testament teaches that if you know Jesus savingly and you are part of the new covenant, you have witnessed more glory than Moses ever saw? In fact, you are in a more privileged position than Moses. This brings us to our second point this morning. See God's glory unveiled in Christ. See God's glory unveiled in Christ. And for this, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 3, which I had mentioned earlier. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 in your Bibles. You're going to need to look at it because we are going to kind of, I'm going to kind of walk you through this passage very quickly. But 2 Corinthians chapter 3 you're going to want to have it in front of you. It deals at length with the glorious nature of the new covenant in Christ. Beginning in verse 7, Moses gives a series of lesser to greater arguments. We kind of understand what that means. You know, if, um, you, know, if, the, if you thought the 49ers were great last year, wait until you see what they can do when they have a quarterback, you know, in Brock Purdy. Okay, and if that doesn't resonate with you, maybe you're thinking, um, if you really like Costco pizza, wait until you have round table pizza. Okay? So these are a series of lesser to greater arguments beginning in verse 7. And he says, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, the tablets of Moses, Paul's referring here to the law, that it's a ministry of death. Not that the law is bad, but the law brings death because it brings increased awareness of sin. The law is not bad. It's not its fault. It doesn't give life. The law cannot give life. But it brought death because of our sin. And he goes on, if that came with glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Then verse 9, another, a lesser the greater. If there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the old covenant, how much greater in glory the ministry of righteousness? What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. If what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more the new covenant glory? In other words, there was a true glory with the old covenant. It was glorious. It was glorious like, like the stars are glorious. But when the sun comes out, 
those stars fade away. That's what it's saying. It's passed away with the coming of the new. The law came with great things, with miracles, with meeting God upon Mount Sinai. It provided for sacrifices and atonement. It provided for blessings. But that would all pass away. The new covenant, this life in the spirit, has no end and is forever and ever. You don't have to be on Mount Sinai for his presence. You have it by the Spirit. You don't have to make sacrifices day after day because you have the final substitute in Christ. You don't need a high priest because you have the great high priest who walked into the holy places on our behalf. That's worth an amen. Amen? We are in a much more privileged position than Moses. We who know the Lord Jesus Christ have seen more glory, but that's not all. Continue in verse 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites would not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old, old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Pay attention, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you see what verse 18 says? I know it's hard being read to, but do you see what verse 18 says? You who are Christians, you who are under the ministry of life, the, under the ministry of the Spirit, a veil has been lifted and you behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this does not cause you to fear like the Israelites did, but it causes you to what? Be transformed. Transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So church, take heart. All of you Christians are growing in the Lord. Verse 18 doesn't say, um, you might be transformed one day. Oh, it's very likely that you will be, or you'll only be transformed if you take seminary classes. That's not what it says there. Every single person in this room, if you believe and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if the Holy Spirit is in your life, he's making you slowly, but surely into a new person. This isn't about trying harder. This isn't, that's the problem with the law. It doesn't change the heart, but you have the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is at work in your life that you might start looking like Jesus. That's the Spirit's job. It's not to get you wealth or health or whatever it might be. His work is to glorify Christ by presenting Jesus to us in all his glorious work and attributes that we might look more and more like Jesus. And sometimes that means going through difficult times. You know, Romans 8.28 says, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We kind of know that verse. But verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed 
to the image of his son. You will be conformed to the image of Christ. In other words, prior to conversion, while you were dead in your trespasses, the Holy Spirit sovereignly, irresistibly worked a miracle in your heart. He created new life in you so that you who once ignored God now seek him. And the Holy Spirit fills you in such a way that you freely live for God more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Amen. Amen. Yet there are some of you this morning who need to be born again. I don't presume that everyone here who goes by the name of Christian or who find themselves part of a local church is necessarily a Christian. Because some of you are dead to the things of God. There are no affections. There is no desire. You find the things of God to be boring and irrelevant. Maybe you find church to be boring and irrelevant. Now, sometimes, I understand you're yawning right now, church sometimes is boring and irrelevant. But could it be, it certainly is possible that you feel that way because you are not under the ministry of the Spirit and you need to be born again. You need the Spirit to blow through you. And will you, in humility, turn to Him today? It is a hard thing, a humble thing, to acknowledge that you might not be a Christian. I'm not calling you to a furious activity. That's law. That will not save. That is a ministry of death. But will you turn to Jesus and plead with God to give you a new heart to lift the veil off of your heart? The surest sign of your salvation is fruit that you're being changed from one degree of glory to the next. There's progress. There's change. But let me be clear to you right now, for those of you who might feel a little uncomfortable in your seats right now, that the Bible does not say, verse 18 does not say, that you'll be transformed 180 degrees of glory to another. It says one degree of glory to another. We have to take the long view Otherwise, we will be too easily discouraged. Don't look at one day to the next, or maybe even one month to the next, but look at years and ask yourself, what was I like five years ago, 10 years ago? Ask somebody who knows you best, how do you think I've grown over the past five years, 10 years? There ought to be progress, but it will take time. Think of it like a tree. As a sapling, there's a period of incredible and quick growth. And for many of us, that might have been in college. But then things slow down, and you grow in a different way. Sometimes your roots are growing down lower. Sometimes the, the trunk of the tree is growing, you know, more thick. Or maybe you're, I don't know, you're starting to flower and fruit is coming. I don't know. But a healthy tree grows and gets stronger, and it's hard to tell day by day if the tree is growing. But then you, look, you come back and you look at the tree a year from now or three years from now, and it's different. How does this happen? How does this growth happen? The answer is right there in verse 18. 
by beholding the glory of our Lord. This is our great need, and I'm convinced that we as a church will grow in evangelism, prayer, and faithfulness, and holiness by drinking more deeply and fully from the fountain that is Jesus Christ. If you're dissatisfied with your spiritual growth, don't look to the glory of God reflected from Moses. Look to the glory of God radiating from Christ himself. We behold what we become. And then we become. And the primary way we behold Christ is by the word as an instrument in the hand of the spirit. This isn't a mere intellectual knowledge of Jesus. There are plenty of non-Christians who can understand the Bible and know true things of Jesus, but their hearts and minds are veiled. There is a hardness of heart. They are kept from seeing the light of the gospel of Christ. But for those who have turned to the Lord, there is a reading of those scriptures that transforms. John Piper would put it as a seeing with a savoring. In other words, as a Christian, the Spirit works through the Word, and we see not with physical eyes, but the eyes of our hearts. Jonathan Edwards writes, the heart now has a new taste, a new sense, a new relish for the loveliness and sweetness of the supreme excellency of Christ. In other words, disinterested, casual glimpses of glory will not transform. It is supernatural, spirit-enabled sight of the worth and beauty of Jesus that will move us from one degree of glory to the next. We see in such a way that we admire him and we are captivated by him. We always become what we behold. I remember when I first encountered the ministry of John Piper. Man, I couldn't get enough of it. I listened to every sermon that I could get my hands on tape for. And I read every book. And I tried to go to every conference that he was in. And if you caught me in that period of my life and you prayed with me, you would have said, he sounds like John Piper. Not the gravelly voice, but I would have said things, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. I would have said, missions exist because worship doesn't. I would have said things like, don't waste your life. Even when I graduated from seminary, people would listen to my sermons and say, you sound like John MacArthur. And I was like, oh, thank you. And they would laugh because I would have no mannerisms just like John MacArthur. And I would preach implication and not application. And the reason why is he was my hero. I loved his wisdom, his incredible insight into the Bible. And unwittingly, I started to sound like him, think like him, even ask questions like him. And if we want to be more like Christ, we must be in the school of Christ. We must look to him. We must behold him in all his glory because when we see, see the mercy of Christ, as he reconciled the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. As we see the beauty of Christ in his justice, for he put forward himself as a propitiation for our sins by his blood. As we see the beauty of Christ's strength in suffering, for when he reviled, he did not revile in return, but trusted in the Father's plan. That's when you, when you behold Christ like that, you become merciful. You become just. You have strength in suffering. You may not see it immediately. Just like Moses didn't see his own face 
when he came down from the mountain and didn't know why people were running away. But others will know. Most of us are toying around with quick, fi- quick fixes, you know, panting after miracles or digging deeper inside of ourselves. But what we need is to spend time with God in prayer, in the Word, meeting with His people, gathered and by ourselves. Time with the Lord should be often. It should be unbothered. It should be consistent. Husbands, are you allowing your wives to have that unbothered, consistent time in the Word? People can tell where you've been. We may think that all the things that we view and what we watch are hidden from view, and people don't know what's in our web browser, and that's true, but over time, we become what we behold. You don't think Instagram is shaping you? You don't think being online has caused your thinking to be shallower? Your doubts about truth more entrenched? The Spirit is not working this transformation on you if we are watching endless hours of trifling YouTube. Not while we dribble our hours away aimlessly exploring social media. You become what you behold. It shapes how we relate to people. It shapes how we think about ourselves, how we think about God. Redeemer, let us be a people with God. You and I know a lot of smart and impressive, gifted people. But how many people do you know that are God-stained people, that are reflecting the glory of Christ? Let us pant after being changed from one degree of glory to another. Let us get in this book. Let us be with his people. Let us set our focus and our affections on Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that you are at work among your people. This is a promise you have made for your people. We know that the Spirit is at work within us. We pray that we would not be quenching the Spirit but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we meditate, as we yearn to see Christ through the windows of Scripture. And, O Lord, we pray for transforming work to fall upon our church, each and every member, that there would be times of quickened growth, and there will be time of steady growth. And may we be a church here in the Bay Area that properly properly reflects the glory of Christ. And we await the day, that glorious day, when we will behold Christ face to face and we will be like him. Oh, Lord Jesus, we know the time is short, and may we, uh, may we seek his face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.